Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Under normal circumstances, the last five years, I've been in Texas this week. And I'm seeing on Facebook all my friends in Texas all posting video and posting how happy they all are and pictures. And, and suddenly my heart is sort of torn. I, I mean, my medical necessities the last few months made it impossible to make that trip. And so I made the decision a couple months ago that I just owed it to Greg Wren to say something. So I said, well, I'm not going to be there. It's just impossible. I can't write, I can't type, and I don't have notes. And you want me to teach for four nights on a subject I've never taught on. And so it just doesn't make sense to count on me, so I won't be there. But now that the week has come and all my friends are there, I kind of wish I was there, but I'm happy to be here with you all. Tonight when I get home and sleep in my own bed, I'll be like, ah, no Texas. <laughs> Has anybody seen uh, the Catholic Church up on Old Nashville Highway? I pass it every time I come out of my neighborhood and then come into Smyrna, come here to this church, I always pass it. And for a long time, they used to keep Bible verses on their sign. And I thought that was great. Good for them. They've got Bible verses up. It's great. And I don't know what happened. Somebody took over the sign ministry and decided to uh, start posting short, peculiar Catholicisms on their sign. Well, the one that's up now has been up for about four weeks. And every time I pass it, I think, what does that mean? And initially, I thought, well, I won't give it too much thought because they'll take it down soon, so it doesn't matter. It's still up. And it says, and I quote, humility is the mother of salvation. What? I got that in a fortune cookie. You got that in a fortune cookie, did you? Yeah. Is that true, though? I understand what they're trying to say, that it's good to be humble because humility leads to salvation, and so humility is the mother of salvation. But is that true? No. No. I think it might refer to Mary. I do believe it refers to Mary. The mother of salvation certainly sounds like Mary. But even then, if it refers to Mary, is it true? No, again, it's not true. I have looked at that sign for weeks now, and every time I've seen it, I've tried to figure out what the meaning was. Because the person who put it up there felt this was such a good thought that he needed to share it with everybody who drives by. Humility is the mother of salvation, and none of that is true. You can't work election into that, can you? Well, you, you can't even work Christ into it. Because if Christ saves his people, and if he's a perfect and a complete savior, then humility might be a response to the fact that you've been saved, but your humility is not the catalyst for salvation. I only bring it up tonight because I think it's a, a good teaching point to say, once again, if you substitute anything in place of Jesus... If you substitute anything in the place of Christ's finished work, then you've created a false theology. Either he died to save his people and he saved them completely, and they in response may be humble. They in response might be good or gracious or any of those other positive attributes of the spirit. But none of those positive attributes is the mother of salvation. Jesus is the cause of salvation. Everything else is a response to it, which would make for a long sign, but, but it would be a lot more accurate. Yeah, exactly. That was my question. So anyway, we're in Micah 4. 
I have nothing but good news for you tonight. And so for weeks in looking at these minor prophets that happened to occur at this point in 1 Kings, which was our jumping off point, so far in looking at these prophets, we've seen nothing but bad news, bad news, bad news. But I have said repeatedly, you can probably say it with me now, it's tattooed to your collective memories that all of the prophets speak with one voice. They all say that God is going to restore Israel. And if you want to sum up the prophets, just say, God's going to restore Israel. Because that's what all the prophets say. And so tonight, chapter 4, and if we're fortunate, we'll get to chapter 5. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 are all good news for Israel because this is the end of Micah's second vision that we've looked at in this book. And it began with all the bad news, with God making his case against Israel, with God saying that he's going to punish Israel and here's why. But then he gets to one of the most elongated good news passages that you find anywhere in the Minor Prophets. So we're going to start in Micah 4, but before we do that, turn to the book of Isaiah. Go to Isaiah 2, because last week I did mention that the beginning of Micah 4 is almost a verbatim quote from Isaiah 2. And since Isaiah was a contemporary of Micah's, since they were both writing and prophesying right around the same time, one of two things happened. Either one of them copied the idea from the other because they would have been around the same time, so they would have been familiar with each other, or the Holy Spirit told both of them to say the same thing. It's one or the other because it's so, so close. The word of the Lord, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So now he's going to give one of his first prophetic messages, particularly to Judah, the southern kingdom, and Jerusalem, its capital. And it starts right out with good news. Now it will come about that in the last days, whenever a prophet speaks of last days, any time that you see Daniel do it, when you see Ezekiel do it, when you see Isaiah do it, they're talking about the eschatological wrap-up of everything. At some point when this time of people on earth where God is being patient while men rebel against him, when that time has come to its fullness and God finally intercedes back into human history to establish himself and his kingdom, we read about the last days. So it's not a particular day. It's not like a Tuesday or a Wednesday. It's the last days. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. Okay, what's that? What mountain had the temple of the Lord on it? Do you remember the temple in Israel? Mount Moriah. In Mount Moriah. In Jerusalem, where the temple was. So the very place where the house of the Lord is, where the temple is, will be raised above all the other mountains. And so it doesn't necessarily mean geographically or physically it will be raised. It means that will be the chief mountain. That will be the most important mountain. It will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations, all the Gentiles, all the Goyam, will stream to it. Okay, so that's never happened in human history, certainly not since Isaiah was writing. And yet he has said that the capital in Jerusalem, where the temple sits, will one day be the chief mountain, and all the other hills will be lesser than it, and all the nations, all the Gentiles, are going to flow to that mountain. And then he says, and many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk 
in his paths. Since when have all the nations of the earth, all the Gentiles, said, let's go to that God of Israel and let's find out his ways and make sure we're walking in his paths? Hasn't happened. Hasn't happened. But here it says it's going to. When? In the last days. Now, since it hasn't happened yet, I think we can safely conclude that we have not yet hit Isaiah's last days. It may be right upon us. There are certainly indications that it's getting closer. And just logically, numerologically, just as we live and every day goes by, we're getting closer to the last days. So he may teach us his ways, and we may walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So there's a time coming when the word of the Lord, which will instruct all the Gentiles, is going to emanate out of the mountain of God where the temple is. Verse 4, and he will judge between the nations and he will render decisions for many people. Look at that verse, and he will judge between the nations. Remember when we were going through Matthew that Jesus talked about sitting on his white throne and that on his right hand were going to be his brethren and on the left hand were going to be those people who saw him naked or hungry or thirsty and didn't respond. And at that point, he says he's going to separate the nations, nation from nation. Well, that's very important because Isaiah said that he will judge between the nations. And certainly Jesus, when he was on the planet, said he would do that very thing. And he will render decisions for many people and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. So in other words, they'll use the weapons of war and form them into weapons of agriculture. Instead of killing people with them, they'll be planting with them. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Are there any wars going on? Plenty. Plenty. Just yesterday, there were people bombing an airport in Turkey. Every day, the news seems to be, and more bad news, and more bad news. There's wars all over the world as people hate each other and they're not forming their weapons of war into plowshares and pruning hooks. They're forming their weapons of war into bombs and guns and knives and rocks and things that they can hurt other people with. But a time is coming, according to Isaiah, when they're not going to learn war anymore. And as long as there's still war in the world, this hasn't happened yet. So we know the last days are coming. Verse 5, come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. For thou hast abandoned thy people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east. And they are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Their land has also been filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land has also been filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. So there's a time coming when those Israelites, particularly Jacob, particularly the northern tribes that have gone off into the Assyrian captivity and haven't been regathered since then, they're going to be told, come back, come back to the light of the Lord. And when they do come back, there's going to be plenty Okay, now that's as much as I really wanted to read so that you'll see the similarity in Hosea. But just so that you get a feel for Isaiah's accuracy here, this isn't really part of the Micah teaching. Did I say Hosea a minute ago? This isn't really a part of the Micah teaching, but look at verse 10. And do me a favor, Tom. Turn to Revelation 6, 15 and 16. Because in verse 10... Isaiah is talking about men being abased and men being punished. And he says, enter a rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So enter a rock 
hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord. And what does Revelation at the end of the book say? And the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So clearly, Isaiah is predicting something that even John picked up in the book of Revelation, 90-96 AD, and he said, this is still coming. This is still going to happen. What Isaiah said was true. I'm telling you now, this is going to happen. And then, of course, verse 12 of that, Isaiah 2 goes on, for the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. So the picture is consistent. God intends to gather Israel again, northern and southern tribes. God intends to lift up the mountain where his temple is, where his worship is, where his praise is, and the blessings that flow to Israel are going to flow to all the nations of the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are going to come to that mountain to learn the ways of the Lord. And in order to bring that about, God is going to punish people, and he's going to bring the haughty down, and he's going to abase men, and he's going to teach them how to worship Christ alone. So again, we've got another example of a prophet saying the same thing. Okay, now turn to the book of Micah. Micah 4, and this will sound very familiar. Micah chapter 4, verse 1, and it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains, and it will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. And many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of God and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Does that sound familiar? It's almost verbatim. It's almost word for word. So you now have adequate testimony in the Bible, one of the rules against being a false witness was that in order to bring any kind of charge against anybody, there had to be at least two people who witnessed it. And so that term adequate witness is developed to describe that. And here you've got both Isaiah and Micah at the very same time saying the very same thing and promising Israel that someday God is going to reestablish all 12 tribes and there's going to be no more war. So if you disagree with that, or if you think that that is somehow satisfied in the church, well, what about all the church wars? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not joking. I'm talking about uh, the Crusades or actual wars that people have gone to, killing in the name of the Lord that has gone on all over the planet, and, of course, the theological wars that are going on all over the place. There still is no permanent peace. But now look at the next verse because verse 4 will tell you yet again that this hasn't happened yet. He said, in each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Okay, do you think right now anybody in Israel is ever afraid? Do they casually sit under their vine and under their fig tree. That's a sign of security. If you're sitting under your vine and under your fig tree, then you don't have any worries. You're not concerned about anyone or anything. And according to this verse, nobody's going to make you afraid. And yet, we see constant, nonstop trouble in the Middle East and in Israel, particularly Jerusalem, to this very day. 
So this hasn't happened yet, and yet I contend that it must happen. So verse 5, though all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, he means as for Israel, as for us Israelites, we will walk in the name of Yahweh, our God, forever and ever. So though the Gentiles may have their other gods, though the Canaanites and the Philistines may have influenced heathen worship in the northern tribes, the day is coming when we, we Israelites, we the regathered tribes, we, we're going to only worship Yahweh forever and ever. And I said it particularly that way because it says in the name of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, but that's the proper name of God. That's that four-letter tetragrammaton. That's God's revelatory name of himself that he gave to men and said, call me by this name. And as often as not, we don't call him by that name. We just call him God. And there are lots of gods, but there's only one, Yahweh. And so we need to call on that name. We need to recognize his uniqueness and his distinction and recognize that that's the one who is the only God and who promised that he would do these things. Verse 6, in that day, declares Yahweh, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. Now, that's really interesting. There's no way to read that verse without seeing sovereignty all over the place. Because God just admitted, they're afflicted because I afflicted them. Now, there are some commentaries who say that this reference to the lame means those who are spiritually lame, that he's going to gather them and make them the remnant. He could also be talking about those that he's physically punished in some way. But look at how much credit he takes for every aspect of it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. Oh, well, that's really good news. And I will gather the outcasts. Oh, well, that's really good news. Even those whom I afflicted. So that's God saying, I afflicted them and I will gather them. I caused the disease. I caused the healing. I caused every aspect of what I do with my people. It's all me. It's sovereign God doing it. Which, by the way, I, I was thinking about whether I would talk about this, but we believe here at GCA, we believe as folks who are convinced of God's complete sovereignty, we believe that everything that happens happens because God ordained it to happen at that time, that way, in that place to those people. And so even when sickness happens, I'm prone to believe that it's God who afflicts people with sickness. Because many times people get sick and then they get well again. And they think, well, I got well because that's nature. Or I got well because I took medicine. Or I got well because I took enough rest. Or... But the truth of the matter, the biblical truth of the matter all the way through the Bible from the beginning to the end is that God takes credit both for the affliction and the cure. He said to Israel nationally as a group, he said, your wound is incurable. But then he also said through Isaiah, by his stripes, by the stripes of Christ, you, Israel, are healed. And so that language of affliction and healing is part of the biblical language that demonstrates God's complete control over everything. And I have contended many times in the past and contend even after what I've been through the last few months. I contend that it is God who in his divine wisdom afflicts people and that those afflictions have purpose. That they're not random. That they're not willy-nilly or hodgepodge or find another adjective. God does things on purpose for his own reasons and sometimes he afflicts and then heals and sometimes he afflicts and there's no healing. But then if you belong to him, I think the end of that affliction is your eternal healing. 
because then you step from life into eternal life. So that's a pretty good deal. That's a pretty good healing. But if somebody gets sick unto death, like Paul was talking about Epaphroditus being with him and wintering with him and saying Epaphroditus had a sickness and then he says, but God raised him up to health again so that I wouldn't have sorrow upon sorrow. So it's God who afflicts and it's God who heals. You see it all the way through the Bible. And I want us to be so firm in that, so sure of that, so convinced of that, that the next time you have to go through your troubles, your trials, your sickness, you'll be able to say confidently, or at least think confidently, I'm right where God wants me. I'm right in the middle of what God has planned for me. So that's what it says, in that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant. Remember I said that this remnant language is going to come up often here in the book of Micah, that he talks about God keeping a remnant of Israel going through all the generations, through all of time, until he ultimately reestablishes Israel and that he's going to start with a remnant. And Paul picks up that language and talks about the remnant in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He uses that same language. In fact, he uses the remnant concept when answering the question, has God abandoned his people whom he foreknew? And he says, no, he hasn't. Because look at me. God has a remnant. And then, of course, Paul's argument goes all the way back to uh, Elijah and says, Elijah said to God, there's no one left but me. And God said, I've kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So there's God again taking credit. I've kept the remnant. I've kept the ones who didn't bow to Baal. I made sure that Israel survived. Now, do you want to prove that one? Find a Jew. That's easy to do. You can look around and find Jewish temples and Jewish people because God has maintained the nation and we can see them gathered in groups in the case of Judah, in the case of the Jews, but I contend that there are also Israelites scattered all over the planet especially when you read about the 144,000 that are going to have the stamp of God in their forehead and they're going to be descendants of Israel. God knows where they are. He knows where they are right now and he's going to identify them. And I think a lot of people are going to be surprised. But he knows where his people are and they exist because he has always kept a remnant for himself. Which, by the way, means... He's in control of human history. He's even in control of which people groups get wiped out and said, this one won't. I'll keep this one. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts I'll make a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. So God said he's going to reign over the outcasts when he regathers them, all the scattered of Israel that he's going to gather again, and then he's going to bring them to Mount Zion and rule over them, even forever. Well, that hasn't happened yet. And I think, let's just throw this out, I think that God understands language well enough, since he's the one who gave language to men, he understands language well enough to be able to say forever and know what he's saying. He knows what forever means. Now, because he's made all these promises to Israel and said that they were everlasting and that they were forever promises, I have a book at home written by a fellow who contends that words changed their meaning from the Old Testament to the New. And that in the New Testament, when it talks about God's everlasting and forever promises to people, well, he really means it there. But because he's done with Israel, all these everlasting and forever promises can't mean everlasting or forever because God fulfilled all that in the church. 
And that's, to me, just a denial of the fact that God knows what he's saying. If he says forever, he means forever. If he meant for a short time, he would have said for a short time. I will keep you around as a remnant, as the outcast. I will keep you around until my son comes. He knows how to say that. You know how I know that he knows how to say that? Because I know how to say that. And if I can do it, he can do it. So he knows how to use language. He knows how to use words. And he keeps saying over and over again, kingdom forever, peace, no more war, regathering Israel, establishing them in their land, the mountain of God. He keeps saying this. And then blessings flowing to Israel out into the Gentile nations. The Gentile nations are going to flow to Israel. You either believe what the Bible says or just admit that you don't believe it and give it up. Walk away from it. Roll the dice. Guess whether God's there or not. But don't say I believe the Bible but only the parts that I agree with. Anyway, I did it. Get that off my chest. If you want to see the book, I have it at home. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. And as for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, he's talking about the hill where the temple is, that's the hill of the daughter of Zion. To you it will come, even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. So at one time during the reign of David and his son Solomon, the kingdom was so glorious that queens would come from another area just to see it and then would have to admit to Solomon that they had heard about it, but now that they'd seen it, they hadn't been told the half of it. They were amazed at the splendor and the power and the glory that was Israel at one time. And now God says, even the former dominion will come. So what does that mean? He says, remember what you used to be like? Remember when David served me? Remember the kingdom that I established for you? Remember how influential you were in the world? Well, that's coming again. Okay, now, since that time, we haven't seen it come again. In fact, what happened was that Israel, the northern tribes were scattered, and the southern tribes stayed together and went into Babylon, and then eventually came back under a Persian king. And then an Edomian king rebuilt the temple and that's the temple that Jesus walked into, but the Jews were still under Roman dominion at that point and were certainly hoping that he would be their king who would throw off Roman dominion. And then he left, and then A.D. 70, and the temple in Jerusalem were sacked again, and thousands of people were crucified outside the walls, and then there was no Israel for a long time, like 18 centuries and then 1948, Israel is reestablished as a nation, but they're a nation that's sort of a democracy right now, and they've got elected officials as opposed to a king, and they certainly don't have anywhere near the glory that they once had under David and Solomon. That's their history. The whole time we've all been alive, they have never regained that glory. But God said they would. God promised them they would. And I know you're tired of hearing this, but either you believe that because it says that, or you don't believe the Bible. Again, that can't be satisfied in the church. There's simply no way to say that the church has reached the point of the former dominion of Israel. Because the church doesn't have that kind of dominion. In fact, if you look around right now, what I see, and I don't know what you see, but I see the church diminishing in its influence in the world. I see secularism 
reigning over the church world. And I don't see the church pushing back. In fact, I see the church just accepting whatever the world does. If the world says, this is good, the church goes, all right, well, we'll go along to get along. I guess that's good now. I don't see the church having the former dominion. But I see God promising Israel that they will have that former dominion. And I believe that. Why do I believe that? Because that's what it says. Okay, verse 9. Now, why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished? That agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? Okay, here comes that language again. You should be familiar with this language. This is language that Jesus used. This is language that Daniel, that Daniel used. This is language that Jeremiah uses. This time of trouble that's coming on the planet, a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, is described as a time when men will be in so much agony and so much pain that they will be like a woman in childbirth, grabbing their sides and bent over in pain and agonizing. And the only thing that they could compare it to was a woman in childbirth, because that's the only pain that would be equitable. This story will cost you nothing. This is an aside. But 20 years ago, I had a kidney stone. And I got rushed off to the emergency room, and uh, I was in agony. Oh, kidney stones just hurt. And so... uh, Uh, The nurse put me in a wheelchair, and she was wheeling me through the corridors to a, uh, a room in the emergency room while I was just begging for drugs, you know, just please make it stop. And she's wheeling me, and she thought she would strike up a conversation, like I felt like conversing at that moment. And she said to me, you know, the pain that a man has when passing a kidney stone is like the pain a woman has when she has a child. And I meant to say, oh, that's interesting. (laughs) I meant to say, good chat, nice story. But instead, I growled at her, and I said, the difference is, at least when the woman's done, she has something to show for it. That's a true story. Uh, so, so I know what he's talking about with all men being gripped like a woman in childbirth because I have it on authority from a nurse that I've experienced that kind of pain. And it did make me double over in pain. So what is he talking about? He's talking about that time of trouble, that God's way of bringing the children of Israel together again, reestablishing that kingdom, that God's way of, of bringing the 12 tribes together and bringing them to their former glory is going to include a time of trouble, a time of tribulation, a time unlike any other time on planet Earth. And that, again, is what all the prophets say. And so Micah, along with the other prophets, says the same thing. Now, why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished that agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? Writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion. Okay, this is really interesting because when you get to Jesus' description of the time of trouble, never would be again. Certainly, Jeremiah's description, he calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. Daniel describes it within the context of talking about Israel. John, Peter, John, and James were each apostles primarily to the circumcised. And so I argue that the book of Revelation is a very, very Jewish book. That was the audience that he was writing to. And so they all see this time of tribulation, this time of trouble, as being primarily God's dealings with Israel. Now, yes, we're told that the other nations are also going to be punished as a result. That judgment of the nations thing is still going to happen. But the chief focus for that time of trouble is Israel, because God's intention at the end of that 
is to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. Sure, the other nations are going to undergo a great deal of agony and trouble. Sure, they're going to experience the fallout of God's wrath on planet Earth. But the focus, the reason for it is Israel. So he says, writhe and labor to give birth daughter of Zion. So he's calling that time of trouble, that tribulation period, a time of laboring so that they can give birth. So there's a good end to it. In fact, when I growled at the nurse and said, the woman has something to show for it, that's right. That's what God is saying here. They're going to go through this labor time, and then they're going to give birth. Well, Isaiah picks up that same language and talks about a nation born in a day. What's he talking about? He's talking about Israel reaching the point of being born again. And he says it's unlike anything anybody has ever heard of. When we hear that a person has been converted, we think, well, that's God doing his thing. But Isaiah predicts that the whole nation of Israel is going to be converted as a group all at once. And it's like a nation born in a day. And is it really any hindrance to God whether he saves one person or a million people? And he promised he would save these. Did he ever promise you he'd save you, Carol? Do you believe him? You're trusting him in that? Yeah, well, that's why I believe that he's going to do that for Israel. Because he said so. Okay, writhe and labor to give birth daughter of Zion like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go forth out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. Okay, that's exactly what happened. Sure enough, the southern tribes went into the Babylonian captivity. And that's exactly what he has told them they are going to do. He's already said, in the last days, there's going to be a reestablishment of Israel. There's going to be a time of trouble, pain, all of that stuff. But for now, go into Babylon. And so if it's true that Israel did go into the Babylonian captivity, which is a historic reality that you can't deny, then the rest of what he said is also true. Because that was true. For now, you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. And there, you will be rescued. And the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So not only are you going into Babylon, but while you're in Babylon, God intends to rescue you. Why? Because it's God that sends them into Babylon. It's God who afflicts them. And God will come rescue them because it's God that heals them. You get the concept? And the Lord will redeem you. That means buy you out from there, from the hand of your enemies. And now many nations have been assembled against you who say, let her be polluted and let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of of the Lord. I like that verse so much because on a fairly daily basis, I bump into people or get email from people or someone on Facebook or something. There's someone attacking Christianity. There's someone attacking what we believe. There's someone saying, that's not true, that's not right, that's an ancient book. It's been through so many hands, it's been translated so many times. You can't trust any of that. You're not smart, you're not intellectual like me. You need to doubt that book. Well, the reason that they don't understand it is said right here. Even though their eyes gloat, they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. People look at the world right now, they look at the church right now, and they say, Man, it's a mess. God can't be in control of this. I mean, the world is nuts. The world is crazy. This can't be God's plan. And the reason they say that is because they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. The thoughts of the Lord are... Oh, what were you going to say? It sounds a bit like Paul in Romans 11. After talking about Israel, he's going to bring in Israel. Who can... Who can understand this? Who can understand this? 
He's going to save Gentiles to make Israel jealous. And then he's going to bring jealous Israel back to himself and save them. Who can figure that out? You know what? We're going to read that as the last thing we do tonight. You made everybody stay two minutes longer. (laughs) But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, and they do not understand his purpose. That's right. They don't understand that these things are happening purposefully. That's why God would say, I afflict and I heal. We might be living in the affliction right now. And human beings look at it and say, well, if God is all good and all right and all holy, then why is all this happening? Well, because you don't understand the thoughts of the Lord and you don't understand his purpose. He knows what he's doing. He has a purpose in these things. People do write to me and they say, my child was killed in a car accident. Where's God? My son has cancer. Where's God? My husband just found out that he has a disease that's going to kill him. Where's God? People ask me all the time, where's God in all this? There's wars constantly and Islam's on the rise. Where's your God? And I can't help but think he has a purpose. He knows what he's doing. And to say anything else is to admit your ignorance, that you don't understand the thoughts of the Lord. You do not understand his purpose. I've quoted this so many times, but Isaiah said, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts. My ways above your ways. So that's just God saying, I'm not like you. So stop using your logic to box me in. I'm not like you and you're not like me. Therefore, I will do whatever seems good to me and I afflict and I heal. So. Now many nations have assembled against you who say, let her be polluted. And by the way, too much of the church says that about Israel now and let our eyes gloat over Zion I think that's why Paul again Romans 11 had to say don't boast against the natural branches because if he cut them off he can cut you off they're the natural branches and you're wild and Gentiles far too often end up gloating against Zion, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, and they do not understand his purpose, for he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion. For your horn I will make iron, and your hoofs I will make bronze, that you may pulverize many people that you may devote to the Lord their unjust gain and their wealth to the Lord of the earth. Ultimately, God is going to strengthen Israel and give Israel the tools to bring those rebel nations into subjection. That's what it says. Now, for Jeff's sake, turn to Romans. We're not going to get to verse five or chapter 5. But by the way, when we get into chapter 5... Micah is going to accurately predict where Messiah is going to be born. And amazingly, he doesn't pick a big metropolitan city or some place where kings are born. He chooses an insignificant little town in an insignificant little village outside Jerusalem. And yet he accurately predicts that's where Messiah is going to come from. So... Micah, again, very accurate. If you agree with Micah that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, even though he was raised up in Nazareth, up in the north, but he was born in Bethlehem, which we'll get to next week. But it also means that God, in his absolute sovereignty, brought about things like a taxation and a census over all of the Roman Empire 
so that he could get that little woman into Bethlehem when she gave birth. That's absolute sovereignty. Turn to Romans. You're probably already there. Let me catch up with you. Romans chapter 11. We're just going to read Paul's summation of these things. Every so often somebody writes to me and says, I just listened to your Romans Israelology. I never saw it that way before. And I think that's true. I only bring it up not to say, oh, dig me, but to say that people have a Bible and they claim they believe their Bible, but they've never really understood the thoughts and the plans and the ways of God. And when they finally see it, suddenly it's everywhere. Suddenly it's all through the Bible. It's right there. But I understand their reticence to grasp it or their inability to get it deeply because even Paul, in describing it, had to say, who's ever heard such a thing? Who's ever? This is amazing stuff. Let's start at verse 28, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Well, then I'll start three verses before that. Well, that's right. And in fact, Paul quotes Isaiah there. And thus all Israel will be saved, just as it's written, and now he quotes Isaiah, the deliverer will come from Zion. That's where the deliverer comes from. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. So we've been reading about Jacob and God punishing Jacob and God taking Jacob into the Assyrian captivity and scattering them and then promising that someday he was going to gather them all again and reestablish Jacob. And now Paul sees in the New Testament, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, he sees the promise of Isaiah as still good. In other words, he didn't say, in the Old Testament, words didn't mean the same thing as they mean in the New Testament. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He's going to take away the sins of Jacob because he covenanted with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to ultimately do that very thing. Now, from the standpoint of the gospel, gosh, I don't have time to preach this. I've got to just read. But every time I bring up and thus all Israel will be saved, because it's written, Isaiah. People are as likely as not to say, well, he's talking about the church. That's spiritual Israel. And yes, all of spiritual Israel will be saved. All of the church will be saved. And so I get them to read verse 28. So you can find out whether he's talking about the church. He says, from the standpoint of the gospel... They are enemies for your sake. So he can't be talking about the church. He's talking about people who are enemies of the gospel. That's why God has to take away sin from Jacob. Because they're currently in sin against God. And God's not going to lose them for it. He's going to save them from it because he made a covenant. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I inserted the word election there, if you have an NASB. It says from God's choice in the NASB, but I just want you to get a feel for it. The word there is the common Greek word for election. And I think the King James says election. Why is it going to be that way? Why is it all going to turn out that way? Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, unchanging. Once he has said, my call is on Israel, that's it. Once he covenanted with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that was the end of it. I told you before, many years ago, that I used to have a bumper sticker in the window of my Dodge van, which I miss, which I nicknamed Van Gogh. (laughs) 
go in a van. Never mind. <laughs> anyway, I had a, a bumper sticker in the window that said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I moved to California in that van. And so God said it, I believe it, that settles it, until a friend of mine said, Are you believing it has nothing to do with it? God said it, that settled it. And I broke out my scissors, and I cut out the part that said, I believe it, as if it was conditional on me believing it. And that cut-out bumper sticker was in my window for a couple of years, and it just said, God said it, that settled it. Now I stand behind a pulpit that says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. When God says something, that's it. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, he's now talking to the Gentiles, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. Remember a minute ago I asked Carol, has God made you promises? Do you believe them? Same deal with Israel. Well, here it is. You Gentiles have been disobedient, but now you've been shown mercy because of Israel's disobedience. So these, he's talking about Israel, so these also now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. You see why I so frequently say, if God's been good to you, you cannot deny Israel. If God's been gracious to you, how dare you not allow Israel the same grace and mercy that you've received? Well, I got that argument from Paul. For God has shut up all, that means both Jew and Gentile, in disobedience, that he might show mercy to all Jew and Gentile. Isn't that brilliant? God made all of mankind fall in Adam so that salvation for Jew or Gentile was an act of mercy. And he's ultimately going to be merciful to unbelieving enemies of the gospel Israel because of a covenant he made with their forefathers. And that's what he said. So now, once Paul has said all that, he says, oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? By the way, that's Isaiah 40. He's quoting again from Isaiah and saying that, that back in Isaiah's day, Isaiah asked the question, who has ever known God? Who's ever been like God? His thoughts are higher. His ways are higher. Who has ever been God's counselor? Whoever said, God, I've got an idea. And God said, oh, good, your idea was better than mine. <laughs> For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? In other words, God's not under debt. You can't obligate God. Anything he gives you is an act of mercy. For from him and through him and to him are all things. All things come from him. All things work through him. And all things come back ultimately to him. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So when you get a sense of what kind of God you're dealing with, and you get a sense of his sovereignty over absolutely everything, and that creation exists for his purpose and his thoughts, and this is his plan, well, then you can actually worship and glorify that God that he let you, you, miserable, wormy little you, <laughs> he let you in on his plan and he gave you mercy and you can't deny that mercy to Israel 
You got it? Now look at all the places in the Bible where we saw the same stuff said tonight. Many different writers, many different passages, and it all tells one story. So I argue that the Bible is sensible and logical, and it tells one story. And if you get that story right, the whole Bible makes sense. Right? Right. All right, then, good. We're done here. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.